Well, good evening, Cause. As Paul said, my name is also Paul, or you can call me Creech if that is easier for you. It's my delight to be with you. Can I start by telling you a couple of stories, right? You up for that? Yes. Right, so the first one is of my friend Kath. Kath is part of our church back home in Cardiff, and she does our leadership year, which is a one-year internship where we take a bunch of guys just like you, and we learn how to be healthy, whole leaders operating in our uh, identity as sons and daughters of God. So Kath does our leadership year, and uh, about three weeks into it, so this is in September time, we have the vineyard legend Steve Nicholson with us. Some of you will know him. He's a pastor over in the States. He spoke here last year. So he was teaching, and then towards the end of the morning, he, uh, he led some ministry time, and he got a word that we should pray for someone's back. Now, he didn't know Kath, but uh, eight years ago, Kath really severely injured her spine, uh, and she ended up with two curves in it that shouldn't be there and in almost constant pain. Um, so much so, Kath is a gymnast and a cheerleader, and she said that she would sometimes cry at training because it hurt so much. So Steve gets this word, Kath comes forward, and a few of us gather around, and in the name of Jesus, we pray for her back, and it is healed. Yeah. Yes, come on, it's amazing, right? And this is a video that she posted on Facebook that night of her doing something pain-free for the first time in eight years. So I want you to watch it. Look at that, pain-free. How cool is that? Eight years of pain, pain-free. I mean, it's cool that she can flip, right? That's cool. <laughs> but pain-free. The other story is of my friend Flora. So Flora is also part of our church back home. She doesn't do the leadership year, um, which we can forgive her for. Uh, there's next year. But Flora is one of our leaders in our kids' church. And uh, a couple of months ago, she really badly sprained her ankle. She went to hospital got one of those like space boots that make you look like an astronaut, and she came into church on crutches. Uh, and towards the end of her session, uh, a few of the five and six-year-olds gathered around her, and they prayed for her, in Jesus' name, would your ankle be healed? And guess what? She walked out of church that day carrying the crutches. How cool is that? Come on, we can cheer. God is on the move, right? In Jesus' name, backs are made well, ankles are healed. I am so excited and expectant about what God is gonna do this weekend. There is power in the name of Jesus. Who's ready to see that power move? God, who's ready to see the power move? Come on, help me out. Amazing. Ephesians 6, verse 11 to 14 says this. Don't worry about grabbing your Bibles. We'll uh, jump into those in a moment. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when that day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And then it goes on. Tonight, I want to talk about one of the greatest battles that I think our generation faces. And that is the battle between truth and lies. And my prayer is that our generation, right, that we would stand firm in the truth. And that freedom that we're singing about tonight, right, that we would walk in it. He's up for that. Yeah. Yes, come on. So I've been reading John's Gospel over the last couple of months. And I've been struck by something that I hadn't really seen before. I don't know, do you guys have that? That sometimes you read something, you're like, I I've read this before, but I didn't know that it was in there. I didn't remember it saying that. And I've been kind of caught uh, by the theme of truth in John's account of Jesus' life. 
Just to pick out a few examples, in John chapter 1, verse 14, sorry, we see that Jesus is full of truth. And then a few verses later in verse 17, we see that Moses gave us the law, right, but Jesus gave us grace and truth. Jump forward to chapter 4, and we see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says that we need to worship in both spirit and in truth. And then you go to chapter 5, right, and John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus being the truth. If you jump all the way forward to chapter 14, you'll get that famous verse when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then in the rest of chapter 14 and 15 and 16, all but one time that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he calls him the spirit of truth. I could go on and on. Truth is scattered throughout the pages of John's gospel. But as I've been reading it, right, one chapter has jumped out to me more than any other. And I've been stuck in it. I've been studying it. I've been meditating it. And I believe it's from there that the Lord wants to bring a message tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, now's the time to grab them and open them up. We're going to jump into John 8. So either scroll uh, or open whatever is your fancy. If you're new to Scripture, um, the Gospel of John is about four-fifths of the way through. So either open up there or scroll most of the way down and you'll find it. We're going to start in verse 31. I'll give you a moment to find it. So John 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Over the next few verses, what follows is a discussion between Jesus and these Jews about who their father is and whether they know the truth, right? Let's pick it up in verse 41, where Jesus says to them, You are doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I have to say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. That's something you don't want to hear from Jesus, is it? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. This passage is where we find Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil. He talks about him elsewhere, but here is where we get the clearest picture of who Jesus thinks that the devil is, what the devil's nature and character is like, right? And I love that Jesus mirrors his teaching about the devil with the great hope that we have. Right? So he says, look, the devil's a liar, but you know what? There's truth. And if you know that truth, it will set you free. Jesus paints this picture of the battle between God and Satan. And it's one of battles, one of, sorry, truth and lies. We learn here in this passage what I think is the devil's main strategy for our generation, against our generation, to stop us walking in the freedom that Jesus offers, right? I don't think for us in the West that the devil's main strategy is to possess us with demons or to cause sickness upon us. Now, he 100% does those things, right? And we as a generation need to cast out demons, we need to rebuke sickness, and we're going to do that this weekend. But I think that his main strategy against us is to get us to believe a lie about God. The 20th century pastor and author, A.W. Tozer, famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a big claim. But let me ask you, 
What is it you think about God? What do you really believe about his nature, about his character? And look, as I, as I say that, there'll be those of us in the room, right, and we're confident. We're like, I, I know that God is my father. I believe he's good. I know the scriptures, and I believe all of that about him, and that's amazing. Then there'll be there, those of us, right, and maybe what we think about God isn't that flattering to him, right? We think maybe he's angry or he's distant. Maybe we, don't, we think he's not trustworthy, right? Then there's those of us right, who are questioning what we once believed about God. So maybe we used to be those people in the first camp, right? And we were like, yeah, I know that God is good, but something's happened. And now we're doubting whether that was ever true. And then you know what? There'll be those of us, right? Who, we're not sure what we think about God because we've never given it much thought. Or maybe we're here and we're exploring faith. If that's you, like, it's amazing that you're here. Regardless of where we are at this evening, the reality is all of us, have something that we believe about God that isn't true. All of us believe lies about God. Now, for some of us, right, those lies will be right at the forefront of our mind. So as I'm saying this, right, you might be thinking, well, like, yeah, I don't actually think that God is good. And maybe for you, it's because you've had an experience. Maybe you've prayed for someone, someone that you love dearly, and God didn't heal them. Or maybe you think, sorry, you thought that God was uh, in a relationship, and then that relationship is kind of like, has, has broken down. And you're like, well, God, I thought that you were in it. And now you're there being like, well, actually, I don't believe that God heals because he didn't heal. And God, I don't believe that you're trustworthy because I thought that you said this. And, and I get the relationship broke down. Right? It's okay to be in that wrestle like, where you're not sure. But the reality is, for those of us who are like that, our experience shapes what we think about God rather than letting God shape what we think about our experience. Right? Now, there will be those of us, right, who don't, we don't have any conscious lies that have come to mind. As I'm talking about this, you're like, that's not me. That's, okay, that's cool, right? But that's because not every lie we believe is a conscious one. Some of them are buried so far down that we don't actually know we believe them. It's a well-documented and well-researched idea in psychology and psychiatry that human beings have a set of core beliefs that operate at the subconscious level and affect the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we behave, and how we interpret the world around us. Psychiatrist and author Dr. Abigail Brenner puts it like this. Your core beliefs create and dictate what your attitudes are. Your attitudes create and dictate how you respond. In other words, they dictate your feelings. And your feelings largely determine how you behave. Once hardwired within our subconscious mind, these beliefs, behaviors, and attitudes become firmly entrenched and the individual, that's you and I, largely operates from the programs installed in early life. As adults, these old programs are still running our life, even though they often make no sense, limit our expectations, and may even be detrimental to our well-being. Brenner goes on to discuss therapy and how, in the past, doctors would talk to their patients about how they felt in or about a situation. Right? And, and in that moment, right, the psychiatrists were able to help the patient become more self-aware uh, and maybe help them build some coping mechanisms. But rarely, if ever, did they see long-term significant transformation. But Brenner then discusses the shift uh, in patient care and how actually doctors now talk to their patients about what they believe. And then they work on changing those core beliefs. And what they've seen now is long-lasting significant transformations. I find a helpful way uh, to think about this is to think about us as a garden. Stay with me, right? Our core beliefs are like seeds in that garden. 
And seeds are hidden, they're buried deep, but from the seeds come the flowers, come the plants, come the fruit. So for us, when our core beliefs are in line with God's truth, then they're a good seed, right? The fruit that's produced in our life, our behaviors, our attitudes, our feelings, would be things in line with like, what we find in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and so on. And as that plant grows and as the fruit develops, right, we become more like Jesus. We become more Christ-like. But when the seed is bad, and in this context, a bad seed would be a lie about God, it produces bad fruit. This could be what the Bible would call the things of the flesh that Galatians 5 lists as things like pride, anger, lust, sexual immorality, drunkenness, jealousy, envy. But it could also be things like fear and insecurity and anxiety. You know what? Some of us would have come in tonight with anxious minds. And tonight, Jesus wants to bring you peace. I wasn't sure if we were going to start praying for people. But I think we'll save that for a little bit. Okay, have a think about your last week. What fruit can you identify? Some bad fruit is really easy to identify, right? It's like when you find like, a rotten piece of fruit at the back of the cupboard. So about two weeks ago, I was in the office at work, and we have a cupboard where we store the food for the leadership year. Uh, and it has stuff like bourbons and custard creams, right? And I love custard creams. Uh, and so it was a Monday, <clears throat> right? And I'm not supposed to go into this cupboard when the leadership year aren't there. Um, and so I snuck down. Don't tell Dan. He orders the feed and helps me run it, and I don't think he knows that I do this. Um, except that when we get to a Thursday, right, there's no biscuits left. So he probably realizes. So I go down, right, and I open the cupboard, and I grab the custard creams out. And as I'm doing that, something smells a bit funky. Right, so I grab the custard creams. I've got the couple of custard creams, and I'm salivating about the goodness that I'm about to receive. And I think to myself, you know what? I'm going to do something to help this smell. I'm just going to close the door. So I closed the door, <laughs> went, up, went back up to, the, to my desk, uh, and, <laughs> and enjoyed the custard creams. Well, I didn't want the smell to ruin the custard creams. And if I'm honest, I wasn't sure if the smell came from the cupboard or from me. Uh, and <laughs> it's real, right? So I went back to my desk. And over the next couple of hours, uh, I went down a couple more times to grab a couple more biscuits. And by the, by the end of it, I, <laughs> I was like, man, you know what? This stink is really bad, and it is not coming from me. So, so I dug into the cupboard, and right at the back in the corner was this bunch of like mushy black bananas. And like, you pull them out, and it's that moment where like, the juice comes over your hand, and you're like, oh, I can't even tell how many bananas are here anymore. Why did we put bananas in here? Right? In that moment, like, that fruit was so obviously bad. Yeah? But when have you been like a mushy banana in the last week? Think about it. Okay, maybe if you're Haley, when have you been like a mushy banana in the last two weeks? We have those moments, right? Sometimes it's really easy to identify those scenarios. But let me help you if you're struggling. Let's say last week your housemate, and we'll call him Barry, because there's not enough Barrys in our generation, is there? <laughs> right? So Barry, Barry had breakfast in the living room. He had a bowl of Weetabix, right? And he made the lengthy journey after he'd finished from the living room back to the kitchen. And he walked up to the dishwasher, the perfectly functioning and empty dishwasher, right? And rather than opening the door, he puts it on the side of the counter. That's not cool, <laughs> right? And then later that day, you come home, you've had a long day, you're stressed out, and you walk in and you see on this counter, a dirty bowl, and you think to yourself, Barry. 
classic Barry. Right. And some of us in the room, when Barry gets home, we're going to flip out and be like, Barry, can't believe you do this. You always do this, right? Not many of us do, because we're too British for that. <laughs> so what's going to happen is we're going to wait by the dishwasher, and we're going to watch the door. And when Barry walks in, and we know that he can see the dishwasher, we're going to violently check that it's working. Right? And on finding that it's working, we're going to throw that bowl in, we're going to slam the door shut, and then we're going to go, hey, Barry, how's your day? Because we're healthy and whole individuals and know how to do conflict, right? Right, we all have housemates like that. If you don't have housemates like that, your housemates do, and you should probably <laughs> repent. <laughs> it's true, it's true. But we're a grace-filled community. Right, whatever the situation, identify the fruit. Right, and in us trying to work out what our core beliefs might be, we can follow the fruit that we find down to its root. You can ask a couple of questions to help you do this. If you're making notes, take these down, right? The first one would be this. Holy Spirit, what do I believe about this situation, the people involved, and myself that has caused me to react like this? So the first question, Holy Spirit, what do I believe about this situation, the people involved, and myself that has caused me to react like this? Right, and that's going to take us some of the way down the, the, down the plant, right? And then the next question, the second question, Holy Spirit, what does what I believe reveal about what I actually think about you? So what is it that I believe, what does that reveal about what I think about you? Right, we've got to pray those questions because we don't believe in self-help. We believe in Holy Spirit help. And you know, as you're unpacking this, you've got to let him help you in it. But those two questions, right, will help us. Once we identify that fruit, we can go down. But some bad fruit is a one-off specific moment, like that time with Barry. But much of the bad fruit in our life is actually bad patterns of behavior. Now, some of those patterns are really bad. They're destructive, like, like destructive relationships or addictions or you know, gambling, that kind of stuff. Like, we can obviously see this is a bad thing. But many of our uh, patterns of behavior that are bad actually look good on the outside. It's like that moment that you, you pick up an apple, like a nice pink lady. None of this Granny Smith nonsense, right? And you get it's like it's, cri it's crisp on the outside, it's shiny, and you bite into it, and like as the juice is flowing down your chin, if you eat anything like me, right, you look down and you see like a little maggot looking up at you because it's, it's rotten in the middle. That's what it can be like for us. Our behaviors look good on the outside, but actually deep down there's something bad. Some of us, right, to help us get this, might be people who always serve. We're on every team at church. We say yes to everything. We've picked up extra responsibility at work or at uni, like with a social sec of our, of our team as well, right? We do everything. We're the type of people who we also like, we push down our own emotions to, to be there for our friends, right? We're always available at any time of the night, right? They call, we're there. And that's, there's some good stuff in that, right? Near the outer core of the, that, like the outer side of the pink lady, right? There's some good stuff. We should serve. We should be available. We should care for our friends, absolutely. But you know what? But we shouldn't ignore God's command to rest. And, and we shouldn't ignore our own emotions. And maybe we need to ask the question, like, why do I always feel like I have to be on team? So we ask those, those two questions I gave earlier, like, okay, Holy Spirit, what do I believe about myself in this situation? And maybe he begins to unpack that there are some of us in the room that believe that people will only love us for what we can do for them. And then once we've got that, we might ask the second question, okay, well, God, what does that make, 
what does me believing that reveal about what I think about you? And we might go, oh man, God, actually, I think that somewhere in me, like, I believe that you only love me because of what I can do for you. And that if I stopped serving on teams and I stopped leading stuff, right, maybe you'd stop loving me. And suddenly we've identified right, this core lie. Now that would be some of us, others, others of us will be like perfectionists, maybe like overachievers, maybe we'll be the kind of people that are always seeking people's approval, so we're always friendly, always kind. And again, in all of those things, some good stuff, but maybe some bad stuff. For me, it was fear of failure. Deep down, I had this fear that if I failed, it would give people an excuse to reject me. Now for some people, right, that fear would make them a perfectionist. I am too lazy for that. So what happened for me, right, is that it made my life outwork in a way, sorry, it outworked in my life in a way of me always looking for an excuse. So you say at high school, right, I didn't revise for exams because I wanted to be able to say, if I didn't get an A star, right, well, it's because I didn't try. So you know what, if I had revised, I could have got one. So look, I didn't really fail. And ultimately, what I was trying to do was create a safety net of excuses that would allow me to say, I didn't really fail, so you can't reject me. And what happened is, right, you know, that, that lie, it wasn't just about other people. Ultimately, I believed deep down, like, God, if I fail too much, like, you'll reject me. So that was what it was for me. What is it for you? What patterns of behavior can you think of that are maybe rooted in a lie that you believe about God? Now, as we're talking about this, right, some of us will be realizing, oh, man, I've got some lies deep down. And some of us, right, some of us will have come in tonight already knowing that we're a hot mess, already knowing that, like, <laughs> we're, like, in the swirl, right? And it's really easy as we start to unpack this stuff for us to get, like, get a bit iffy. But what we need to remember is what the Apostle Paul commanded in his letter to the Ephesians, stand firm and buckle your waist with the belt of truth, right? And John 8, 32, that verse we read, when Jesus said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set us free. We can have hope in this place that there is truth for us and that we can believe that truth. So, I hear you ask, what is the truth? Well, we find out, right, in that famous verse in John 14, 6 that I read at the start, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, Jesus himself is the truth. Truth is a person, which is a bit odd, but... That would mean that we need to get to know that person to get to know the truth. And one place that we find out a lot about this person is in this book. So we could read maybe in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that God is faithful, or Psalm 18, verse 30, that God's way is perfect, or Exodus 34, verse 6, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Or maybe we could read in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, that God's holiness is unrivaled, right? Or in Romans 5 verse 8, that it was whilst you and I were still sinners that Christ died for us to set us free. Or Psalm 140 verse 12, that God's heart is for justice for the oppressed and for the poor, right? Or we could then go to Matthew 9 verse 22 and find that Jesus is the kind of guy that would say to a bleeding woman, an outcast in her society, daughter, right? And then we could read Luke 15, my favorite story in the whole Bible, and we could find that no matter how much we mess up, no matter how far we run from God, when we turn back, he is a loving father that will run out to meet us. 
This is the truth of who God is, and it's here that we find it. And it's this truth that is in here that will lead us to freedom, right? It's this this truth that our core lies are often battling against. It's this truth that we buckle around our waist to stand firm. Jesus' claim that there is truth is radical, right? It was radical when he made it, and it sure is radical for our generation because we live in a post-truth culture where for us, truth has become subjective. Now, if you guys were on social media in 2016, which I would be surprised if you were not, right? you will remember fake news, echo chambers. You will remember the world of politics blowing up. And like, literally, it felt like anyone could say anything. And some people would be like, yeah, that's great. Right? That's how it felt. All of this led to Matthew Norman, a columnist for The Independent, lamenting at the end of 2016, The truth has become so devalued that what was once the gold standard of political debate is now a worthless currency. I don't know, have you guys seen David Letterman's My Next Guest Needs No Introduction on Netflix? Okay, some people, right? It's a great show. would really recommend it if you've not seen it. He interviews like super famous people that don't need an introduction. It's hence the name, right? And in his first one, he interviewed the former US president, President Obama. And Obama summed up the current state of play beautifully. He said this, one of the biggest challenges that we have to our democracy is the degree to which we do not share a common baseline of facts. He was highlighting that our culture no longer values the truth in politics. But it's not just in politics, right, is it? On an individual basis, our attitude towards truth has drastically changed. About five weeks ago, Uh, I was in church in our evening service, and the way that our church building is set up, we have a cafe bar downstairs, and then we have the auditorium where we have the kind of service upstairs. And it was about 10 minutes to to the end of the service, and I was downstairs in the cafe bar um, setting up for a newcomer's evening that we were doing that night. And in walked this lady, uh, and she looked a bit confused because, like, no one was around. So I went over, and I started speaking to her. Turns out that her friend had invited her to church, which was really cool, except that he had forgot to tell her that it was a church that he had invited her to. Right? So she walks in, and we start chatting, and very, very quickly, I realize she does not know this is a church. And so I tell her, and I tell her I'm one of the pastors, and it's like, it's great. And as soon as I say that, she was like, oh, okay, like, that's cool. Um, like, I'm really spiritual. Like, you've got your truth, and I think that's great. I've got my truth, I think that's great. You know what? And like, for her, truth is just subjective. Now, a cool aside, right? She has been coming back to church every week since then. And two weeks ago, she like, ran up to me at the end of the service, and she came, and she was like, you know what I think about Jesus? And I was like, hey, like, great to see you. Like, nice week. How are you doing? Uh, and, and she was like, I, you know what I think about Jesus? But I can just feel such real and warm, genuine love here. And I was like, that's cool. And she was like, I just need to tell you. Right? And then what was amazing uh, is she, she said that one of the words shared that night uh, about like a gammy knee was for her. And so after a little bit of discussion, because she didn't really think that I could pray for her if she didn't believe in Jesus, but I said, it's right, like I do, and that's enough. She let me pray for her knee, right? And we did the whole thing where you go, like, how painful is it? It's like, it's an eight when she walks, it's a five when she stops. Uh, and so we prayed, and then I asked her, I was like, well, you know, what happened? She was like, well, you know that I'm spiritual. And I was like, yeah, I do. And she said, something changed in my knee. And I was like, ooh, that's cool. And I was like, well, like, does it feel any better? And she was like, I've got to go. And she like ran out of the room, which I'm taking as a good sign, right? And I'm going to claim that <laughs> as, a, as a healing. But that was cool. But you notice that phrase, right, she used. You have your truth, I have mine. Truth was subjective for her. But you know what? Many of us in the room will have said things similar to that. 
as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Whatever fate should be. Like, who am I to say that they're wrong? Like, as long as it makes them happy. Now, right, of course, each person should have their own opinions. And some of the stuff that we would have opinions about, right, it's not the battle between truth and lies. It's like, whether you're going to have a flat white or a peppermint tea with your smashed avalanche taste tomorrow morning, it's like, that's just life in 2018, man. Like, that's okay. <laughs> but some of it is. And in our culture, we are told to look inside ourselves to find the truth. We're told to find whatever truth works for us. Right, we're told, hey, the truth that you'll find will probably make you happy. And the danger is for our generation that Jesus becomes just another option on the menu of truth where we think all of the meals are good for us. But you see, when we look at Jesus and we read this book, it becomes clear that for Jesus, truth is not subjective, right? Truth is not found within ourselves, and truth is not ultimately about what will just make us happy. Truth is found in no other name than Jesus. And as Simon did a great job talking about earlier, truth was nailed to a cross. And truth was raised from the grave three days later, right? That is the truth that we have. We find the truth in the cross and in the empty grave. See, this claim of Jesus that he makes, that there is truth, that we can know this truth and this truth will set us free, is directly opposed to the, the, the view of our culture. And I want our generation to see that, right? I want our eyes to be opened. And I want us to be a people that will stand firm in the truth. Say, so, if there is truth, how do we know it? Remember um, the start of the passage that we read tonight. John 8, verse 31, Jesus said this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. The ESV translation puts it like this, if you abide in my word, love that. There's no way of getting away from it, right? It is the classic, standard Christian answer. Read your Bible. I listed earlier the truth that we find in the Bible. And from day one, right, vineyarders have been people of the book. We love this book. But... <clears throat> If I'm honest, and if we were honest with ourselves, right, our generation kind of sucks at reading it. It's true, isn't it? You know what, we're the, we're the generation that have it more available to us than any other generation before us, yet we're the ones who find it hardest, right? And even, look, even if we find reading hard, which I know many of us do, right, we, can, we can listen to David Suchet, Poiré himself, read the words of truth over us, right? Yet we still do you know what? I think reading the Bible is a bit like dating. Hear me out, right? I'm married to an amazing woman who's sat over here, Claire, who I couldn't love more. She, you guys should meet her. She is wonderful. And uh, we've been married two and a half years now. And marriage is an amazing, an, uh, amazing thing, a gift of God, right? But it, it, it can also be difficult. And in pre-marriage prep, they talk to you about the importance of keeping a date night, a regular rhythm of spending time together where you can connect and have quality time. Now look, we have not always been uh, the best at this, but we have tried. And I will be honest, right? I'm not actually gonna look at Claire. I'm gonna be honest, right? <laughs> Some of these dates, you guys over here, right? I have knocked them out of the park, right? <laughs> Quality, right? I have, I have bought her the perfect bunch of flowers, 
or bouquet, bouquet of flowers. I've cooked her like an amazing meal. We've had like nice wine. We've laughed. Like we've got along. We've walked into town, just like enjoying each other's presence. We've watched a great movie that was really lighthearted. We've come back. We've walked home, and we're just like we're just enjoying each other's presence. But then there are other dates, like when I cook. Claire a dinner after she's maybe like finished a, like a 12, 13 hour shift in the hospital. And it's one that, I know that she doesn't like that kind of food, but somehow I've just forgotten that. And so she comes home from a stressful day, I'm like, oh darling, I've cooked you this food. And she's like, well, I didn't like that. And it's like, oh, okay. And then there's other ones, right, where no matter how much you try, everything you say, you just annoy each other. <laughs> and it's just like, man, I don't really like you tonight. <laughs> That's real life, right? And you know what? It would have been really easy. I love you, darling. It would have been really easy for us to stop the rhythm of dating. Maybe not after the first bad one. But let's say we had a couple of bad dates in a row. It would have been really easy for us to stop that rhythm. Like maybe not even super consciously either. Maybe we would have just let our diaries fill up. And I'd be like, well, I'm going to go see the boys. And Claire would be like, well, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm sorry, we can't make it work this week. Okay, we'll do it next week. And then before we know it, actually, we've not been on a date for months. But two and a half years in, right, our marriage is way better. I love that woman more today than I did two and a half years ago because we have, we have spent regular time together. We have connected week in, week out. And it's the same for us reading the Bible, right? If you read this book, if you commit to a regular rhythm of reading it over the next two and a half years, I guarantee right, that you will be in a better place because of it. You'll be more saturated in the truth of God. Now, will you enjoy it? No. Right? <laughs> That's true. Sometimes you're going to find it boring. Sometimes you're going to find it confusing. Sometimes you're going to be like, I literally have no idea what I just read. But will it be worth it if you stick it out? Absolutely. Right, let me tell you a story of, of how this has played out in my life. A number of years ago, back in 2012, I had a profound encounter with the Lord where he revealed something to me deep down uh, about these kind of core lies that we're talking about. And, and what, he, what happened in this moment, full of like the tears and the snot and the mess, is that he revealed that actually deep down, like I struggled with some issues of self-worth. Which honestly, like, I had never really thought about before. But as I look back, I could see the patterns of behavior that would make me think, actually, that could be true. Now, look, I am so lucky. I've got amazing parents. They love the Lord. They love me. And I've got amazing family and friends. But somehow, in the message that I had received from the culture, I had come to believe that my worth was linked to how well I did things. And that actually, deep down, I didn't really know if I was worth anything. And so I had this powerful encounter with the Lord, right, where the Father was just like, you are worth something to me. And in that moment, right, there was freedom. Now, in that moment, did everything change? No. The Lord did an amazing work in my heart, right? But it was after that point, over the last six years, as I have drip-fed my soul with the truth that is in this book, that actually I have begun to walk out the freedom that the Lord began in that powerful encounter. Right, right now, I stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around my waist, that my father looks at me and says, you're worth something, right? I know his heart towards me. I am safe in that. And now I walk in the freedom of a son whose father, he says, you're worthy, right? Which means now, you know what? If you guys don't like me tonight, my father thinks I'm worthy. You know what? If I don't get that next promotion at work, my father thinks I'm worthy. 
like fill in the blank, whatever it is, I stand here with a father who says, hey, I think you're worth something. And I want our generation to be one that stands firm in the truth. So that what happens for us is God shapes what we think about our experience rather than our experience shaping what we think about God. Because we'll say, okay, this, this bad thing happens, but my father thinks I'm worth something. Okay, this, this, this friend really hurt me. My father thinks I'm worth something. And suddenly we begin to walk in the freedom that we're singing about, right? And I know that many of us will have come longing for a powerful encounter. And I pray in Jesus' name that that would come, right? But I'm going to tell you something. The powerful encounter will not bring about the change that you're looking for. What's going to bring about the change is you committing to a regular rhythm of drip-feeding your soul with the truth that's in this Bible. So, what are the lies that you believe that you need to have replaced with truth? What truth do you need to hear from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus, to walk in the freedom that he offers? Because our hope, right, is in the name above all names, right? He defeated death himself. This isn't a fair fight. You know this cosmic battle between truth and lies? It's not fair. We're on the side of the guy who defeated death. He's going to defeat your lies, right? This is not a fair fight. This is the name, right? He, remember when those five and six-year-olds prayed, right? They prayed in his name, and an ankle was healed. So his name has power even in a kid's lips, right? His name can break the power of lies that we feel. In his name, there is freedom. In his name, there is hope. In his name, there is security, right? In his name, there is truth. So why don't we stand and let his truth come and meet us tonight?